Good morning. Hope you're doing well. Merry Christmas to you all. We are in our third week of our series called God With Us. Um, Today we're going to be in the book of Daniel, chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Daniel, chapter 3. If you don't have one, just look underneath you. Grab that one. It's uh, white and blue. You can keep that. It's totally yours to keep forever. Uh, If you have one at home, you can take that and just go give it to someone. We want you to give it away. So we're going to be in Daniel, chapter 3. Uh, the, the idea of what we're doing, just so you kind of, uh, if you haven't been here, you can catch up with, with what's going on with us in, in this particular series we're in. Each week, uh, we're looking at uh, an, a story from the Old Testament uh, about God being with us. And so um, the idea that we had God with us, instead of just looking at the New Testament and seeing stories about Jesus being with us, what the idea was is that over the last three weeks, including today, we would look at stories of the Old Testament about how God was present with his people, but in a, in a, in a visible, tangible way. And as God was with them, that builds us to Christmas Eve, the God with us, the visible, tangible Jesus Christ that was born. And so the first week we talked about from uh, Exodus chapter 14, uh, God being with us, and as he was visibly with his people, he was with them in the form of a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. So we got these, these awesome pictures here. We have, we have the cloud and the fire. You can see uh, that was the, the first display of God being with us. And so as we looked at Exodus 14 and saw God, God being with them by the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire, <clears throat> we saw that Jesus or God was with them through patience. He was being patient with them. He was with them and protecting them and he was with them in provision. Those three ways. So the first week as we saw just kind of the big picture of what it means for God to be with us, we saw these three huge categories of these great blessings of having God with us through patience, protection, and blessing. Um, or patience, protection, and provision. The next story that we zoomed in on was Second Samuel 7. And as we looked at Second Samuel 7, we talked about the Ark of the Covenant. Again, depicted in the picture here. Uh, but we have the Ark of the Covenant, which was the, the visible presence of God. It was thought to be in the people of Israel, this Ark of the Covenant. This represents the actual presence of God with us. <clears throat> and it had been away from them for a little while, but the change in leadership brought to their attention, oh, we need the Ark of the Covenant here. David went and he got it. And as he brought it in, from the first week, we talked about these big, awesome things about having God's presence. The second week, as we looked at it, we say, well, if that's the case, then I desire God's presence in my life. The second week, we talked about some, some ideas about how that can physically affect us, the practicing of God's presence in our own lives. And we made a stark kind of contrast of the omniscience presence versus, not stark contrast, but at least there's a difference between the omniscience presence of God, which means he's everywhere, and the manifest presence of God, which is that he's here with me in my heart, in my life actively doing things in my life. And we said, since he's, um, those things about him, which are patience, presence, provision, protection, we want those things in our life. Then we said from last week, some of the things that means for us then is that we should actively pursue him. We should return to him. If we don't know him, we should pursue him. If we do, we need to continually cultivate this pursuit of God in our lives. And that whenever we do this, it's going to be done on God's terms, not ours. Uh, If he's not present in our lives in a real tangible way, looking at how he's blessing others should cause us to say, I want to have the blessings of God, not financially per se, but just the reveling of being in the gospel and and, uh, being in that. And then lastly, we saw that having the presence of God with us gives us great reason to worship. So we talked about some of these blessings of having the presence of God. From the first week, we talked about how awesome it is. The second week, we say, therefore, since it's so awesome, these are the direct things that you get as you pursue God. Now, this third week, I was loving and hoping to be able to kind of talk about the third thing regarding, and and I think we do. But we're going to come at it maybe at a little bit of a different angle. Um, so this third week, <clears throat> we're looking at Daniel chapter 3. Again, uh, looking and zooming in on an Old Testament narrative, an Old Testament story, where the very presence of God is manifested in a, in a, in a tangible way. So if you're familiar at all with Old Testament history, um, which, you know, I know we all just read Old Testament history books every day. Uh, so this is much later on in their, in their history. So you've got the setting up of, of Israel. They escape from Egypt. They finally have a king. They kind of go into two kingdoms. As they go into two kingdoms, one kingdom's taken over, the other kingdom's taken over. And as that happens, one of the, the people that came in 
uh, Babylon had come in and kind of taken over this kingdom and set up their own kingdom, no longer Israel. But here we have, as we're looking at Daniel chapter 3, Babylon had come in into one of those kingdoms, set up their own kingdom, and taken over the, 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 the land that the Israelites once had. So we're looking at Babylon's kind of takeover, and king, the king at this particular time is Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I'm going to bounce back and forth and either calling him King N, like capital N, because Nebuchadnezzar is a pretty long word. So I'm going to bounce back and forth between both of those, but um, just to give you the heads up. So that's where we are in the history of Israel, and we're zooming in on Daniel chapter 3, seeing another third story of God's presence with, with his people. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Daniel chapter 3. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the, the amazing truth that it has ultimate authority. And even more so, God, that it is absolutely sufficient. The sufficiency of your word is an amazing truth that we should constantly remind ourselves, which is it is sufficient in causing us to love Christ more, serve Christ more, showing us the places that we need can to be convicted and showing us the places where we need to follow you more. And so I pray, Lord, that the sufficiency of your scriptures would shine through this morning and reveal to us, including myself, Lord, start with me, of the places that we need to submit over to you and really enjoy your presence. Be with me now, Lord. I pray for your, your help. I know that I can't communicate or preach at all unless you come now and fill me with your spirit and cause me to be sub- completely submissive to you and in your leading. I pray for us all as we hear from you that you would, you would join us and that you would show us the places that we need to live for you. And Lord, more than anything, I pray that you would cause us to have deep affections for Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Daniel chapter three. Um, as I said, <clears throat> this is much later on in, in the history of Israel. And there's a couple things that maybe you should kind of know. Uh, perhaps you're not well acquainted with the book of Daniel. So Daniel uh, had been kind of lifted up into the higher realms of this, of this particular kingdom. As he had been, uh, if, you could, if you've read the first couple chapters, basically they, they were told that they were supposed to eat the king's food. They said no. And then later on, Daniel interpreted some dreams for for old king in. And so when he did that, he got lifted up into some higher positions. Look at chapter two, verse 46. Just go up one paragraph and you'll see kind of the end of what happens there. When king in fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. He had interpreted a dream for him and it worked out well for, for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar liked it and he said, you know what, Daniel and your three guys, I'm going to lift you up and give you a little bit more power in this kingdom. And so, uh, and he even makes this amazing declaration of of. Yahweh, the, the true God, saying that your God is the God of all gods. He's the Lord of all kings. So of all the people that try to claim power, he's the best. He's on top, which is a pretty amazing statement for this kind of pagan king. But we can see by the time we get to 3-1, it's already gone. Um, then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request. You know, he has these other three friends of the king. And, he, and so the king appointed uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. So we have this declaration of the king that Yahweh God, the one true God, is the God of all gods, the Lord of all kings. And so we see that he has this idea that he's pretty awesome. He thinks that Yahweh is awesome. But then by the time we get to 3.1, there's already kind of this change. And if you read chapter 3, by the way, I'm sure you're familiar with this story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, in the fiery furnace. Uh, perhaps you're not. If you're not, it's, it's awesome. You're going to be on the edge of your seat all morning. He's going to be like blown away. But anyway, so one of the interesting things a commentator points out is that chapter 3 is completely um, disregarding Daniel. Like, Daniel's just absent. He's not even there. He, he likely wrote this later, but it's just about Shad, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego, and there is no Daniel, which is interesting because he's thrown in the lion's den, he stands up with them regarding food, he interprets the dreams, he, he's, he's all over the book, but for some reason he's absent in chapter 3. Um, and so, possibly is because he had been given such a high honor in the king's court, a high position, that when 
if you look at verse 8, 3, 8, the people that come and make the accusations against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, therefore at that time, the certain Chaldeans, that's just Hebrew for tattletales. Uh, whenever the tattletales came and maliciously accused the Jews, it's not actually, but the, they were probably scared of Daniel uh, in his high position. And so it made them nervous to say anything about Daniel, but they're going to go for the other three. They're going to go for the other three. So that's why they start saying things about, about Dan, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So here we are. Uh, and, and likely, here's, here's kind of the big, the big text, textual theme. Here's the main point of this entire chapter 3, which is our sovereign God is able to deliver his faithful children or even faithful oppressed children that refuse to bow down or refuse to compromise their faith um, from certain death that might be impending on them. That's kind of the big idea. Now, we're going to see that be played out. But remember, I said that Daniel was written later on by Daniel. And as he's writing it, he's writing it to Israel. And they're going to be reading this later on. Uh, And so as he's writing, one of the things that Daniel is trying to point out to Israel, which later on when they hear these stories, the reason why they write these stories for later generations is that they would have renewed encouragement in Jesus. Or we should say, in God, who is Jesus. They would have renewed encouragement in God. So as Daniel writes this later, he's wanting them to see that God is sovereign, that he's able to deliver them from from things such as exile and now even things like this, and to encourage God's people that they should not bow down to false gods, other gods, idols, etc., even if it might mean impending death, even if it might mean that death is certain for them, that they should not bow down to any kind of idols that people are trying to get them to bow down to. So Daniel, as he wrote much later, um, is writing it to Israel, trying to help them see the, the sovereign the sovereign hand of God and his faithfulness towards them and trying to encourage later generations not to bow down. So the title is In the Presence of the King. And as we're talking about In the Presence of the King, we're talking about King, king Nebi, King In. Um, so they're in the presence of this particular king and there are certain things that are supposed to happen. So if you look with me at 3.1, and here, here's what I said, that amazing transformation. Some commentators said some time had passed between 2.47 and this declaration that your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords when we get to 3.1, which here's the thing. King Nebuchadnezzar has power and clearly a lot of pride. And those two things account for, you know what? People should worship me. I am pretty awesome. I love me some me. So in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar sets it up. This is what it says. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And, and this is a, a statue or an image of gold, image of, gold of himself. He, he loves him himself, him, some King Nebi, and he wants everybody to, to love that too. And so he sets up, interestingly enough, a commentator says, in the plain of Dura. And the plain of Dura is the exact same location from Genesis 11 where the Tower of Babel had been made. And so it's an interesting little kind of uh, comparison of the two, which didn't go well if you haven't read Genesis 11. Um, and so it's the same idea here. Uh, he's setting this up and likely you'll see some of the same results will happen. So he loves, him, he loves himself. He sets up this, this golden image and it says, then the king Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image of the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So invites everybody that has any kind of importance whatsoever to come see the, the thing of himself so that they can all worship. Then the satraps, they all came, um, gathered for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. Verse four, and the herald proclaimed loudly, you are commanded, O people's nations, languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, I don't know what a trigon is, but a lot of other instruments, it's basically the marching band's there. Bring everybody here, uh, and you're just supposed to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebi has set up. And verse six, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning furnace, burning fiery furnace, um, Verse 7, therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of all the instruments, and this sounds a lot like Revelation 5 right here, where every tribe, tongue, and people will be gathered together before the king. Notice this. As soon as they heard all the music, Revelation 5 is what it sounds like, um, all the peoples, nations, languages fell down and worshipped, but then it says, this is not Revelation 5, the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So verses 1 through 7 
Nebuchadnezzar had taken the turn back to prideful love of himself and says, everyone needs to love and worship me. And so I'm going to set up this, this big, huge statue and I want everyone to worship me. So whenever you get into the presence of the king, and the, that's Nebuchadnezzar, and the marching band starts up, everybody needs to worship me. And if that doesn't happen, then, as it says right there at the end of verse 6, and this is a pretty big deal, you're going to be thrown into a fiery burning furnace. You will die a torturous, humiliating, burning death. So as they hear that, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here are tempted. So first thing that I want you to see in the text right there in, in the first scene, if you will. It, and number one is in the presence of the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are tempted to compromise. They're tempted to compromise like any of us would be. It, here, here's the deal. You can keep worshiping Yahweh or you can worship me. And here's your choice. If you worship God, you're going to be killed into the fire furnace. If you worship me, you get to keep breathing. So those are your two choices. And so as they are faced with this, it's interesting that the declaration of 247, truly your God is the God of all gods, the Lord of all kings, that idea that Nebuchadnezzar had 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 disappeared completely from his memory. He had returned back to love of himself. And so there's a, there's a temptation for these three to compromise. There's a temptation for these three to compromise in their, in their worship. So let's, let's go ahead and ask some application questions as we look at this first thing. As we look at this first thing, um, the idols or the temptation to compromise for these three were the fi- this, this golden image. Now, that's not the same for you and I. There's no golden image that's really tall, you know, seven feet tall or however that long that big that is uh, in front of us. And we're certainly not tempted to, to worship that. And there's probably no fiery furnace for you if you don't. However, there are plenty of temptations of things that could be idolatrous in your life that you could compromise your faith where you could say Jesus or whatever this other thing is. So what are those things in your life? Identify what some of those things might be. Think about what they are and, and think about this even more. How do they tempt you? What, what are the things they say? What are the, the whispers of lies they try to um, seduce you with? What, how, what are the things that they say? And when that happens, when, when that temptation comes, maybe this is a little bit of a subjective question, but how do you feel when that happens? How do you feel? Do you feel really s- seduced by it like you want it? Or is it something that maybe you're a little bit stronger of? If you're stronger, are you strong in the Lord? Are you strong in your own willpower? What, what happens in, when these things happen? And the most obvious question, these are pretty straightforward. I'm going to ask application questions after all these. But what does the Lord, what does God himself want you to do? When this happens, what is the, the idea or the response that Jesus wants you to have when temptations come your way to compromise your faith and long for whatever idol or whatever other thing might be out there that trying to seduce you in to, to get rid of uh, your love for Jesus? So this is what happens to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For them, it's, it's life and it's either worship him or, or die. Worship Nebuchadnezzar or die. So in the presence of the king, Nebuchadnezzar, there's a temptation to compromise their faith. All right, keep going to verse 8, and we're going to see some more things. So here come that certain time, the, the Chaldeans, the little tiles, hills. They came forward, and look at this. They maliciously accused the Jews. And Hebrew, that's a Hebrew idiom that's just been kind of translated for us for words that we're, we're familiar with, which is maliciously accused. But in, in Hebrew, the idiom is literally eight pieces of the Jews. So they, I mean, they... It's a, it's a pretty strong little idiom or term that's used to say they dislike them so much that the way they say it is they ate pieces of them. They made literal mincemeat out of the Jews. They maligned them very, very vigorously with their words. So they come and maliciously accuse the Jews and they declare this to King Ebenezer. Oh, King Lifton. So they get all, you know, old school like King James on them and, and they say, oh, King who lives forever. You've seen this in these plays from like the 1300s. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lot, and they just name all the instruments, shall fall down and worship you. And whoever does not shall fall down and worship and shall be cast into a fiery burning furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. So you can feel this kind of subtle, kind of stinging accusation from the little tattletales. You did this, king. You appointed them, and they're not even going to follow you. What are you going to do about it? 
Are you going to let them get away with this? You're all powerful. How can this happen? So that you can see this little, this little subtle kind of thing that's happening there. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And here's the charge. Here comes the charge of what they have done. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So you have this decree that they're supposed to live by. You appointed them, and they don't care about what you say. As a matter of fact, they don't serve your gods. They don't worship the golden image that you've set up. So you can feel the accusation that's, that's been kind of put there, the charge that these foreigners that have been placed in position over them, which, so the Chaldeans hate the fact that foreigners are over them in, in a position over it. They want to do anything they can to get rid of them, so they make this charge against them, which isn't necessarily untrue, but they could have just, you know, kept their mouth shut. They could have been cool, you know? So anyway, um, in verse 13, you can see the power and the pride that Nebuchadnezzar has and what it drives him into, obviously, a furious rage. The Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. Oh, that's the case? Get them here now. I need to have a conversation. And so they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, and this, this isn't true. It's almost as Nebuchadnezzar doesn't believe the Chaldeans. He doesn't believe what they've said, that, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as good as he's been to them, as he's elevated them into power, it's almost like he doesn't believe that they would really disobey. And he wants to give them another chance to possibly uh, set the record straight or recant possibly what they've said. And so he, he brings them and he goes, is it true? Oh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? And then in verse 15, he does this amazing kind act of uh, this amazing gesture. It seems like this is pretty, pretty big that he's ready to do this. It, I don't believe that this isn't really true. As a matter of fact, just because it's maybe it's not true, I'm going to do something here, which I don't necessarily do all the time, just to set the record straight and show all the Chaldeans that you're really on my side, that you really love me. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring in the whole marching band right here, and they're going to play a special set just for you three. And you're going to show them when the music starts. You're going to watch in verse 15. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigger, blah, 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 every kind of music, I'm going to bring them in. And just for you, a special show, you're going to bow down and you're going to show them. And it says that whenever you're going to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But also, just remember, if you don't worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fire furnace. So special show for you. Just want to set the record straight and show the Chaldeans that you're not going to do this. Bring in the band, play the music. It's all going to happen. And then he, he throws out this, the end of verse 15. This is kind of the big, huge question that Nebuchadnezzar has for them. It, it's, the, it's really the, the big kind of question overall of chapter 3. It kind of springs up right there in the middle of chapter 3 and umbrellas all the way around and has this big, huge question that's getting answered throughout the entire narrative of chapter 3. Who is the God that's going to deliver you out of my hands? Because Nebuchadnezzar believes he's the man. He believes he's the all-powerful. He knows what it's like to be a king. Do this, they do it. Go there, they go. I Kill him, they're dead. Whatever I say, it happens. No one can deliver anybody out of my hand. I'm all-powerful. I feel the sovereignty of being powerful in this land of Babylon. When I say people to it, you think you can escape my hand? No one escapes my hand. And so he looks at him and goes, who is the God that would deliver you out of my hands? So he throws out this kind of, scare tactic question towards them. Calvin, as he's looking at this, says, King Nebuchadnezzar is substituting himself for God rather than people to have the desire and worship the true God and promote God's glory. So he said, no more promoting of God, as I said back in 247. Instead, I want me to be worshipped. I want the one that's going to be worshipped and adored because we already know his heart in verse 15. No one can deliver you out of my hands, not even your God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which I'm familiar with. I've already made a declaration of who I think he is, the God of gods, the Lord of kings. Back in 247, no longer think that. No one can deliver anybody out of my hands because I'm all powerful and I'm all awesome. So we see this declaration in 15. So as we're here, this is... If you, if, if you ever binge watch Netflix and you get to the end of season one, you know, and you're like, oh, cliffhanger. Let's watch the next one. You know, it's like, so like, this is like 
that's the cliffhanger into season one, and you're like, I can't, I, I gotta see. So as, as Daniel's writing this, he keeps giving these little end of season one, end of season two cliffhangers, like, I gotta go to the next thing. So Israel's like biting their nails, they're on the edge of their seat, they're like, what happens next? Do they die? Do they make it? You can, you can hear as Daniel wrote this for the later generations, he, it's, Netflix did not have anything on him. He's, he's, he's ending it with these awesome cliffhangers. And so 15 to 16 is kind of the end of season one cliffhanger where you're all just like, I gotta, I gotta watch the next one. Play, play. Go to the next one. We got time. So like, they, they go to the next one. Um, but here, before we go into 16, let's, let's think about this. We're on the edge of our seat. We're biting our nails. We're trying to figure out what's gonna happen. Um, there's really three scenarios that we can think of, I think. Um, at least in the people of Israel, as they're listening, and as they're trying to decide what is it that, we, that, that uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can do, there's three scenarios. There's one, they can do what Nebuchadnezzar says. They can save their life. They can compromise their faith. And they can start worshiping this, you know, nine-foot statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. And, and just say, we're all in with you. Forget that. You're right. No one can deliver us from your hand. We're going to do it. The second one is, they can compromise their faith and still worship Nebuchadnezzar's statue. But just don't mean it in their heart. You know, yeah, sure, we... Yeah, bow down and awesome. Good playing, band. I love the trigon. You know, just, they're, they're just do it anyway and say, yeah, but I just don't mean it. And then obviously that's still an insult to Yahweh, a major insult to Yahweh. Um, even though they think the statue isn't a real God, but they can just do it, but still just not mean it in their heart. Or the third option, which is no compromise. Stay steadfast in the face of trials. And... We are going to stand up for Yahweh. We're not going to break Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, which says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that under heaven or on earth that beneath or that is under the water, under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation for all those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to those thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's Exodus 24 through 6. We're not going to break that commandment. So we're going to stay steadfast. We're not going to compromise. We're not going to break that commandment. And even if it means we're going to burn for it, we're going to do it. We know that he's already told us, no one can deliver me from his hands. So we're either going to worship him, we're going to worship him but not mean it, or we're going to not compromise and, and go ahead and go to the fiery furnace. Those are our three options. So we could play season two, episode one. Here's their answer. And this, is an, this is an amazing answer. It starts off, and they're looking at Nebuchadnezzar, and then they give this, this it's, it's not what you think. It, it, you got to reread it just to, to see. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego looked at the king and they said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. So it's not like we're not going to give you an answer. It's they're going to give an answer because they do. It's we have no need to do it because the answer's already been given. You've read, you've heard us maybe quote Exodus 24 through 5. So the answer we give, you need to realize, king in, the 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 answer we give is not our answer. We have no need or really any place to give you our answer because the Lord God Yahweh has already given the answer. So all we're going to do is we're just going to take his answer and give it to you and realize that it's his answer, not ours. So we have no need to give you an answer in this because he already has. So here's his answer. And this is what they say. Verse 17. This is, this is amazing, amazing faith in Yahweh. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able. Just that phrase right there is, is enough to sustain you for the rest of your life. And whatever comes, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. Our God, whom we serve, is able. Now, they don't know what's going to happen. Um, one commentator said that the uncertainty about God's ability to deliver them. We know that he's able, but we just don't know whether he's going to or not. He, he might or he might not. We don't know. The uncertainty about God's ability to deliver or God's desire to do it from the fire is what makes their loyalty to God even more impressive. Like we know that he's able to, but he might not. He might choose for us to die. And so that's even more impressive than say he's able to and we're just gonna have to see which way he goes. So they say, 
Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fire furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So either way, we're out of your hands. You know, we're either going to be delivered and be shown as, as servants of God and he's going to be made as awesome. Or we're going to die and we're still out of your hands because then we'll be with, with him. But if not, if he doesn't deliver us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words, we're not going to compromise our faith. We already talked about what are some of those things that maybe tempt you. Their resolve is we're not going to compromise. Those things that tempt you have this kind of resolve. I'm not going to compromise. So here's the second thing that we see. In the presence of the king, that's King Nebuchadnezzar, in the presence of the king, we see the punishment for the unbroken spirit by which they do, the three do not compromise. We're going to see that here in 19 and 20. So they say, no matter what, um, you can put on number two, and in the presence of the king, we see the punishment that's going to be given out by Nebuchadnezzar because these three have an unbroken spirit and they do not compromise. The punishment is handed out here in 19 and 20. As they say this amazing statement to him, saying there's no way that we're going to compromise. We'll talk about why in just a second. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. So this pride, this power is, is so big in his heart that he can't stand to be kind of, you know, shown to be weak in the eyes of his, of his followers, all these prefects and, and satraps and governors. And so it says literally, and the expression on his face changed. In, in the Hebrew, it literally says that his face became distorted. His face literally, like, I wish I could act it out, you know, just becomes like f- physically distorted. He's so mad. Just pictured like the craziest looking face, and that's what he does. He's, he's absolutely astounded that they would just defy him right there in front of everybody. The, his face becomes distorted against uh, Shad, and his face changed against Shadmach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the fiery furnace heated up seven times more than it was usually heated. This just means as hot as it can possibly get. It's like seven's the number of perfection. Get that joker as hot as we can. Throw in every cat we have to get that thing going. Just get it hot, you know? So get it as hot as we possibly can. So we see that in the, right here in the king's presence, there is this punishment given to them by their unbroken spirit. Now, Calvin, as he looks at this, he, he makes a couple observations, which I think are pretty awesome. This means, obviously, because they uh, obey God they think that God will deliver them. They don't know, but they think God will deliver them. So here's Calvin's looking at this, and he says, there, there are two reasons why these three men stay so strong. There's, there's two good reasons why these men stay, stay so strong. First is, they knew that God is the guardian of their life. God's the guardian of their life. God's the one that determines our days. God's the sovereign hand over everything. God is the guardian of their life, and he would free them from this present death by his power, if they're still going to be useful for God later on in their life. They knew that. God's the sovereign hand over everything. And if God still wants to use us in this life, he's going to free us. If he doesn't want to use us anymore in this life, then we'll go to the, we'll go to the fiery furnace and we'll die. And we're okay with that because God's the guardian of our life. He's the one that decides. That's the first one. The second one, I love this. The second one is not only do they trust God's sovereignty, second they had a determination to die boldlessly and fearlessly if God wished for such a sacrifice to be offered. They had a determination that they're going to be bold and fearless in the face of this. Now, I think that we all need to stop and think about this. Every single one of us has been given a life to live for God. Some of us come to faith later, 20, 30, 40 But we all live at an average age of 80. So what's going to be our determination? Are we going to, in this short life we have compared to the eons and ages that we'll be with him, are we going in this life to say that the 40, the 50, the 60 years I get for Jesus, I'm going to dilly-dally and flap around in the wind, carry it around and do whatever I want? Or am I going to, like these three men, be bold and fearless for him? I, don't, I only get this life. I don't get any other chances. There's no one that I can evangelize in heaven. They already know. There's, 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 there's no reason to not kill sin as, as deeply and as, as dedicated as I can right now. So am I just going to live this kind of flippant, half-hearted life for him? Or this short little life, 
I have such a resolve in the sovereign hand of God and belief that he is who he says he is and he's more precious than any other reality. Am I going to be as bold and as fearless as I can for him in this life? I think this is a huge thing for us to consider. And then Calvin, after he writes this, he writes this little comment afterwards. He goes, scarcely one in a hundred people holds this deeply and surely fixed in his heart. He's saying those people are few and far between. Now, don't let that little extra comment that I didn't have to tell you deter you then from saying, well, I'm going to be one of those 99. Because you know what? At Remedy Church, we could have all the ones here and all those 99s could be out there. Like we could literally have the people that are going to say in their mind, you know what? I am determined in my heart. I have made it my resolution that I want to live as boldly and as fiercely as I can for the king. Whatever time he gives me, it doesn't matter. If he wants my life to be offered as such a sacrifice for him, and I don't mean death, I mean just the ability to talk about your faith to people, the ability to live out Christ out loud towards people, to to love them loudly. I am going to be as bold and as fearless as I possibly can when it comes to living my life for Christ. I am not going to compromise. Instead, I'm going to be as faithful as I can. So here's, here's some applications questions as we think about the unbroken spirit by which these three did not compromise in the face of of uh, this impending death that was in front of them. Do you think that you're capable of this kind of unbroken spirit that they had? Do you think that you're capable of this kind of non-compromised faith that they had? Why or why not? And I want you to just consider this. You have the exact same Holy Spirit, as Romans 8 says, Spirit of Christ in you as any other believer that would say yes to this. The Apostle Paul himself, you've got no more or less Holy Spirit than he does. So of course you can be absolutely capable of this kind of non-compromised faith. How does standing strong for God, even in the face of death, how does that make you feel? Let's take away even in the face of death, because that's for them. Let's say in the face of persecution. Because our persecution in America is not like it is likely all over the world. And so it's a little bit different. And I'm not, saying, I'm not trying to belittle that, that reality. I think that that's still um, maybe mental persecution is worse than physical in the long haul. I don't know. Um, I'm not an expert at all on that. But how does standing strong for God in the face of persecution that you might receive in your job, in your home, in your work, in your neighborhood, if you were to really start boldlessly and fearless, fearlessly, as Calvin said, living for Christ like this, How does the standing strong for God, even in the face of persecution, how does that make you feel? Scared, nervous, apprehensive, don't want to, forget it, not for me. Somebody else can do that. I like to sit out. Yes, I want it. That doesn't bother me. Jesus is worth it anyway. How does it it make you feel? And who who is it that's trying to break your spirit? Are there, are there any people, like for, him, for them, it was the king. You know, worship, compromise your faith here. Are, are there any people in your life that are trying to compromise? Or any things, if it's people, do they need to be in your life right now? Maybe they still do. But if it's things, does it need to be in your life right now? What's causing you to compromise? And how can you trust Jesus more than whatever it is that's trying to break you? And see Christ as the most precious reality in the world. Because he is. Like, we all have to get to the place where we, we finally agree that there is no more precious reality. There is nothing more important. There is nothing more sweeter than Christ. Than knowing him and being known by him and being forgiven for our sins. So once we get to that place, how can you then trust him more and more and see him as more precious than anything and not compromise like these men? And say, I'm going to live as boldly and as fearlessly as I can for Christ. No matter what the cost. No matter what level of outside persecution that might come. In his presence, um, there are many precious realities. But one is, like these people, a determination to live this kind of way. The more that we're with him, the more that we see him as more precious than anything. The more that we, we understand that at his hands are Uh, delights forevermore, then we realize nothing compares. There are no idols that come close to comparison 
to our God and knowing him. That was the, that was the point of 2 Samuel 6 when uh, Dagon fell down the, one morning, fell down. Any idol in comparison to God is nothing, is useless compared to, to God. That was last week. Get back on this week, sorry. Um, so here we go. We've seen, we've seen those, those two things in the, in the presence of the king. That they're, Whenever they're in the presence of the king, they're... They have commands to, to bow down and worship. They have commands that come to them that there could be even death. All right, so now we're at verse 21. Then these men were bound. So we get, you know, the end of the, of the episode, we're going to keep watching. So what's going to happen? What are they going to do? They're, they're going to be cast into the fiery furnace according to the king. Verse 31, then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and all their other garments. So they didn't even take time to, to take the clothes off, which, you know, they didn't have an old navy that they can just go grab something for six ninety nine when it's on sale. Like, clothes are pretty important to have. It take a long time to make them. Let's get those things and keep them. Somebody else can use them. Nope. We're going to keep their clo- cloaks on them, their tunics, their hats, all the other garments, and we're going to throw them into the fiery furnace, which, of course, those things would catch fire right away pretty fast because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated. We, we warmed it up with all these cats. We need to get it burning hot. And the flame of the fire killed. It's interesting. And, and I've, I've often tried to figure this out. But the furnace itself is somehow made. I was, I was reading some commentaries trying to figure it out. But you have this kind of big furnace where they're going to put them in the top somehow. And there is some kind of bottom part where they could escape as long as there's no fire. But if there's a fire, when you drop in the top, you're done. But there's some kind of bottom part where they, they feed in the, the things that make it burn hot. But there's also some kind of window so that whenever, whenever they're put in there, you can still see in there. You can see the furnace. We don't, I don't know how big it is, but obviously big enough to hold people. Um, so that's the kind of setup. And so as they're bringing them up, the servants are bringing them up at the top. They're going to get close enough to start dropping them in. I guess maybe it was some kind of funnel at the top. I can't quite wrap my mind around how this works. I've tried to figure it out, but we know that once they get close enough, even the people that bring them, once they get close enough, they're going to they're gonna fall in. That's all we know. So we say, it says here in 21, the king ordered it seven times. It's just, it's just burning hot. So even getting close is going to be a problem. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, I'm at verse 21, and their tunics and their hats and, and the other garments, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Because the king's order was so urgent and the furnace was so hot overheated, it says that the flame of the fire killed those men who were taking up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So even, I don't know how this works. It's like whenever they're, they're taking them up, if they just die, I don't know why they're just like, oh, they died, I'm gone. You know, but somehow, the, I don't know how it works, but somehow, even though they died, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego still fall in. I mean, that's, that's what it says. It says in verse three, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. So maybe it was because they were bound, I don't know. But one little commentator made this point. I thought it was pretty awesome. It says, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, was not powerful enough to even save his servants. But if you know the story, King Jesus is powerful enough to save his servants. So anyway, I gave it away, sorry. Um, I'm bad at Netflix. Anyway, verse 24 here. So it says this. They're, they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And so as Daniel's writing this, I mean, he is just cliffhanger after cliffhanger again. So they're thrown into the fiery furnace, end of the season, and you're like, oh, my goodness, I can't stay up any later. Like, I need to know what happens. I mean, are they going to die? They, they, who knows? And so we get to verse 24, and we start the whole new season. And just picture it this way. This is what happens. It's just a zoom in on King Nebi's eyes, right? There he is looking, and it starts zooming out, and you see, oh, it's Nebuchadnezzar's face. Oh, and what's he doing? He's staring at the furnace, and he's like kind of confused. And he's staring at it, and he's staring at it, and he's like, now, three isn't how to count to. <laughs> one, two, three. That's pretty easy. It's not like I'm counting like 20,000 or something. And he's looking at it, and he's looking at it, and he's astonished, and he gets up in haste very quickly, and he declares to all the people, the counselors, the prefects, the satraps, or whoever's there, did we, di- Shadrach, Meshach, it's not a, didn't we throw three men into the fire? Just three. And they're like, yes, true, O king, true. Is exactly right. And then verse 25, and he's, maybe he's pointing. He goes, but I see four men. Like, that should give us all chills there. Think about that. We know the story, but act like you don't know the story. You're the Hebrews reading, being re- read this, and you're on the cliffhanger, and he's like, but I see four 
We threw three, and it's not Daniel. He's vacant from this. There's a fourth man in there, and then it even goes further. I see four men unbound. They're not even bound up anymore, and all four of them are. And they're just walking around in the midst of the fire. It's it's like walking on the sun. It's not too hot, though. I'm fine. Like, this is kind of crazy, right? You have them walking around in the midst of a fire. And so here you have Nebuchadnezzar just absolutely kind of astounded of what's going on. How is it that this has happened? I I got it burning fiery hot seven times more than any kind of thing that can happen. Well, Isaiah 43.2. Isaiah 43.2. That was prophesied and has now come come true. When you pass through the waters, I shall be with you. We saw that in Exodus 14. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Now, here's the thing. As Israel's being read to this later on, they had seen miracles of God. They had seen miracles of God kind of take them through like the the parting of the waters. But there had never been a time where this miracle of saving them from the fiery furnace had happened. So as they're reading it, they're just thinking, well, maybe they're going to die. We don't know. But then Nebuchadnezzar looks and says, wait a second. I see four men, and it's not until they're in the middle of the fire does he show up, this fourth man. Let's think about this for a second. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego encounter the divine presence in the middle of the fire. They don't encounter it uh, when the law is given. They don't encounter it as the law, as they're being, you know, told on by the Chaldeans. They don't encounter it as they stand up and say, no, we already know what we're going to do. They don't encounter it even as they're being dragged to the fire. It's not until they're absolutely in the middle of what would seemingly be the worst part, the fire, until they encounter the divine presence. I think as we think about that, there's a little application point that we can make. Where we're most likely going to encounter God's presence in our life, most likely, is in the middle of our storm, in the middle of our trial. How many times have you had these conversations? It's when I finally got to the absolute worst part, I finally cried out to God, and that's where he showed himself to be amazingly faithful. And it's not that God's kind of absent all along the way, but most of the time he's always there, and finally our mind is turned to and say, it's it's the worst it could possibly be. God, I need you, and his divine presence is there. He's always been there, and you've just now become far more aware of it. And here we are. There's a fourth person in the middle, walking around, and they're not even hurt. And then Daniel quotes King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember this. We're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to point this out even later on in another verse. But these are, the, these are the words of Nebuchadnezzar as he's looking at what's going on. And Daniel's just quoting what he says. Daniel's not saying what it is. Daniel's just quoting Nebuchadnezzar as he says what he thinks it is. Um, they're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth, this fourth man, is like a son of the gods. Um, some of the other translations, I think it's King Jimmy, says it's like the son of God, capital S and capital G. Uh, it's hard to tell. Uh, it could just be the sons of God. It's maybe more, a little more accurate. But uh, I'm going to make my case a little bit on, later on on who I think this fourth man is. But what we see here is that in the midst of this, tro- this, this problem, so... In the midst of this problem, king shows up. And now I'm not talking about Nebuchadnezzar. So let's look at number three. In the presence of the, in the, presence of the king, now I'm not talking about Nebuchadnezzar, I'm talking about Jesus. In the presence of the king, there is amazing great reward. Namely, his presence. That sounds a little kind of redundant. Like, Fudd, what are you saying? In the presence of the king, the great reward is his presence? That's exactly what I'm saying. Um, Whenever the great reward of of these particular men of having the presence is literally the fourth man's here giving us amazing protection and we are enjoying his protection here. We're enjoying his presence being with us. I mean, this this is out of this world amazing that this fourth man, we'll call him, is here delivering us from certain death. And so the greatest reward that we have. Now, I want to be clear here because there are a lot of secondary benefits from knowing Jesus. Being forgiven of sin, not having guilt anymore, 
uh, getting to go to heaven and living forever, not having to experience death or cancer or sadness in heaven. All these are secondary benefits of heaven. Great things. Things that we should even use as we tell people to come to know Christ. This is what happens. But the greatest of all those things about heaven, the greatest thing about heaven is not that no cancer or no more sadness and no more temptation for sin, but the greatest thing about heaven is Jesus. That Jesus is there. We get to be in the presence of our Savior. Piper writes a whole book called God is the Gospel, and it's the whole idea. The good news is that we get God. Not that we just forget forgiven by God, but that we get Jesus. We get to be in his presence forever. And so here, the presence of the king... As they're in the presence of the king, they realize the greatest thing about being in the presence of the king is the king himself. We get to be in the presence of the king. So they are in the appearance of what is the, of this fourth man who appears like the son of God. And now the drama is that Isaiah 43 two has happened. It has come true. And that, that he has delivered them as they walk through fire and shall not be burned and the flame does not consume them. So let's look at verse 26, and this is where it gets um, towards the end. Nebuchadnezzar kind of has a, has a moment where he flashes back over to the initial beliefs of 247. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. It must have you know, gotten a lot, lot less hot then. And he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the, look at this, most high God. He's already moved back over to seeing exactly who Yahweh is, a renewed understanding of who God is, and a declaration of I'm not the Most High God. This little statue over here means nothing in comparison to you, the Most High God. Come out here. Come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the fire. And this is where it gets awesome. All the people are there, satraps, prefects, governors, kings, counselors. They're all gathered together. And they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of, of the men. This means that they were the first witnesses the first witnesses to the great move of God in these three particular men's life. This is, this is just an evangelistic opportunity that's happened right away. God just did something awesome, and here are the very first witnesses getting to see that, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, having been saved by God, have an evangelistic opportunity to point them to God. I mean, how, how applicable is this for us? Who are, right now in your life, the first witnesses who are the people that if you were to say, I'm going to be as bold and as fearless as I can for the Lord, who are the people, the little outliers in your community that you're in, that if you did that and God showed up and did something amazing, who are those kind of first witnesses that would have this amazing opportunity for evangelism? Don't you want them to have that? I think we all do. So think about those family members, neighborhood people, people in your work or, or whatever that as soon as the Lord does something awesome and they're gathered over there and you have this first opportunity, these first witnesses to be able to see this greatness of God, think about your desire right now that you would want them to see that and pursue standing up and being bold and fearless for him. But here we are. It says uh, that the fire had no power over their bodies. I'm in the middle of 27. The hair of their heads was not even singed. Like, you know, in Luke, one commentator pointed out in Luke that he knows all the hairs on our heads and he counts them and he knows them. And he points back to this verse and says, even the hairs on their heads were important to him that he didn't let any of them burn up. And says their cloaks were not harmed. And this is the best part. They didn't even have smell of fire upon them. You know how when you go to the campfire and you get home and you're like about to go to bed and you're like, oh, I smell campfire. I gotta take a shower, you know? Like here, they didn't even have the smell of campfire. It's just, you know, shampoo and soap or whatever it is they use. Like they didn't even have the, the stinky campfire smell. Like, you don't even smell like fire. This is crazy. This is how amazing the deliverance of God was. Not a hint of fire. There's a pretty good gospel implication there. Nebuchadnezzar answered. So here he is, a a declaration of blessing towards God. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his, all right, remember, this is, King Nebuchadnezzar's assessment of the situation. He has sent his angel 
and delivered his servants who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any other God except their own. So his assessment is God, your God, sent an angel and delivered you when you were told to worship me, you decided not to and you still wanted to serve your God. So here's the fourth Here's a fourth thing in the king's presence. In the king's presence, there is an occasion for blessing. That is what Nebuchadnezzar does. He blesses the Lord. And there's an opportunity in, your, in the presence of our king for you to have an opportunity for blessing and an opportunity for evangelism. Those first witnesses, opportunity for evangelism. So in the king's presence for you, especially whenever you don't compromise and you live boldly, there are awesome opportunities for you to have multiple chances to bless the Lord for people around you like Nebuchadnezzar that are in your circle to bless the Lord. And if they don't know Christ, for you to be able to tell them how God has delivered you and point them to Christ. And there's a great opportunity for them to come to know Christ. A great chance for that. Evangelistic opportunities. And also these, these pitiful idolaters, these counselors and prefects have a great chance now to know the good news that these first witnesses said, Isaiah 43, 2 has come true. They walked through the flame and it did not consume them. The fire did not burn them. And who is it in your life right now that has, that has this opportunity? Who is it right now that has this chance? So here's some application questions for you. Who needs to see the power of Jesus strong in you? Who needs to know how amazing it is to be forgiven by Jesus? Who around you right now needs to see this amazing power of Jesus where you don't compromise, but you live boldly and fearlessly for him? Neighbor, you're about to see a whole bunch of people maybe you don't see very often in this next week. Or anybody that you're going to see, or any of those people, people that need to see the strong power of Jesus in you. Who in your life needs to know how amazing it is to be forgiven by Jesus and trust in Christ? So, verse 28, the angel language. Nebuchadnezzar says it's an angel. What do I think? Obviously, there's only two options, right? It's either an angel or it's a Christophany. This is just uh, an appearance of Christ before the incarnate, incarnation or before his birth in the New Testament. Those are the two options. Um, I think it is a Christophany um, because there are several times that we've seen already in the Old Testament where it says something like an angel, but we also have seen synonymous use of language that it's also God himself. And I just don't think that's any different. It seems to be the overall pattern of the Old Testament is to say when, when something crazy that only God can do happens, and, they, and especially here it's just the king giving it to, the, to an angel. I think it's just Daniel making a comment. That's what Nebuchadnezzar thought, but we all know. So what's the point? What's the point of me trying to, and by the way, Calvin agrees with me and he's way smarter than me, right? Um, Not that Calvin, Johnny C doesn't know everything, I know. But so is it it a Christophany or not? Let's at least just take a step back and say, what's the point? What's the point? What's the point of Daniel 3? What's the point of Daniel? Is it just to encourage Israelites to stay faithful and not give in to to gods? That's, That's a point. But I think the point, and I bet you can guess, The point is the gospel. That's the entire point of Daniel 3. Here it is. This fourth man, whoever he is, certainly prefigures Christ. If it's not Jesus, and I think it is. The fourth man, because of his presence in here, he comes and rescues, saves, and delivers these three men from the fiery furnace of absolute certain death and even erasing any hint or smell of smoke. In the same way, Christ, Jesus, because of his presence, literally his presence for us on the cross, for us, he comes and rescues, saves, and delivers us from the fiery furnace of hell, which is absolutely certain for all of us because we all choose to sin. He comes and absolutely saves us. That was ours. And erases, not just hints of smoke, but erases any sense of sin in us and says, justified, innocent, completely righteous. That's the point of Daniel 3. The fiery furnace that was ours, certain death, the presence of Christ, namely Jesus in our place on the cross, erases that and declares us completely clean. The very Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, has come to save his people from their sins and save them from the fiery furnace of hell. 
That's what Daniel 3 is all about. That's what the presence of God is all about. You can notice that there's reward given, verse 39. I'm going to make a decree. Any nation, language, tongue that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn from limb to limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there's no other God who is able to rescue or deliver or save. This is salvific language that the king Nebuchadnezzar is imploring here. No one saves this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego even higher in the province of Babylon. Reward may or may not come, earthly reward. Heavenly reward certainly comes. But it seems to be, and this is just a pattern. This is just a pattern of the Bible. God shows up, which he always does, in amazing ways. He shows up as faithful, always, sovereign hand, always there, always faithful. And then there's always declarations of blessing. Blessed be God. He is the most high God. This is just a pattern that the Bible lends to us. When we see and hear and experience faithfulness of God, our response is always declaration of praise and glory to him. And this is what we're going to do now. Follow the gracious pattern of the Old and New Testament to give him the glory for what he's done for us as the point of the gospel for those who are in Christ. We've all been delivered from the fiery furnace and that is great reason just like Nebuchadnezzar and that's great reason for us to all bless the Lord our God. So let's all stand and I'll close us in prayer and Jordan will lead us in a time of worship through song. Let's pray. God, your presence is so amazing and we thank you for it. I pray that we would bless you and give you all the glory and honor that you're due because you have saved us from the fiery furnace of hell. Your presence, literally Jesus in our place on the cross has ensured 100% salvation for us and just like there's no smoke, not even a hint on them, there is now no sin, not even a hint. We are declared in your eyes completely just, completely righteous, completely innocent. And that is great reason for us to bless you and give you the worship. Be with us now as we celebrate and give you the glory. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.